Hi, everybody. I'm Jay. And I'm Brian. We're popping in here with a very special announcement. For the month of March, we are releasing five new episodes, and we need your help. That's right. If you listen to Filmstrip Podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher, we need you to leave us a written review for the show. These help the show reach a bigger audience, and that is what we want to do. Expand the reach. Even if you listen on another platform, you can still write a review on Apple Podcasts. So as a gift back to you for this, for every five-star written review we receive, we're opening up the suggestion box to you all. That's right. At the end of your review, leave a comment with a movie you want us to review. Only caveat is it has to be something we haven't already reviewed. For a list, check out the archives. So at the end of March, we'll gather all the suggestions and we'll pull a winner out of the hat and review that movie in one of the coming summer months when we're usually doing our bi-weekly release. We'll do a special bonus show. We know we need the reviews to help expand the show's reach, and we figured since we were asking for this, least we could do is take a suggestion from one of you for our future show. And so once again, leave us a five-star written review on Apple, CastBox, Google, or Stitcher sometime in the month of March. Suggest a movie you want us to review, and at the end of March, we'll pull the suggestions and select a bonus review from you, our fabulous audience. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. And this is our review of A Day at the Races, starring Groucho, Chico, and Harpo Marx, Alan Jones, Maureen O'Sullivan, and Margaret Dumont. Directed by Sam Wood, released in 1937 by MGM, one of the four movies that the Marx Brothers did with MGM. And I think it's like their seventh one together with Alan Jones and Maureen O'Sullivan and Margaret Dumont. They, they kind of had a little troop going, but this marks a big occasion, Ron. This is by far. The oldest movie we have ever reviewed on Filmstrip, and I mean by decades. <laughs> well, that's good to know. And they're going to get even older because we're kind of starting at the end of the we're starting at the end of the golden period of the Marx Brothers, and we're going to work our way forwards to their uh, more even more slapstick anarchic stuff. Yeah, we'll talk about all of it here on this one, but you're the one responsible for this idea here. So as part of our little uh, duology of March, why are we doing a Marx Brothers movie in 2020? Well, I found out that I believe you and a, quite a, a few of the film strip hosts have not seen the Marx Brothers before. And these guys are just the, the seminal, like 100% the basis of slapstick comedy. So it's kind of, it's kind of important that the, if you're a comedy fan at all, that you take a look at these guys because they, they're extremely influential. And, and more importantly than that, these movies are still really funny. Yeah, that's the first thing I noticed about this was that I thought, OK, something this old, I'm going to have to like really put myself in a mindset for and all that. And there is some of that in this movie. We'll talk about it when it comes up. But for the most part, it was just pretty straightforward. I mean. I, I think I've seen the basic idea of like, we've got this great scheme to save the farm or in this case, the sanitarium or, you know, whatever it is. And uh, then hijinks ensue. 
And that's kind of what happens in this movie. And uh, I, uh, I was blown away by it. Yeah, I, the Marx Brothers uh, are, a, uh, I guess, a blind spot, you would say, for me. Slack's thick comedy tends to not be something that I do really any of. Um, I mean, back in the old days of film strip, like in the now, you know, in the vault sections of stuff, I think Anna and I did quite a few of them together and they were fun, but they were movies that I kind of knew, like, you know, Mary Poppins and stuff like Caddyshack. And, you know, even I would say like part of at least the original Ghostbusters is that way. Uh, but for the most part, I, I don't really go for these kind of things. Big, broad comedies are not really my thing. That's one of really kind of Brian's thing. Um, but even he hadn't seen you know, these and I, I don't know, I was just intrigued by the idea of, okay, you know what, let's, let's do a Marx Brothers movie for, you know, Marx Madness, if you want to, uh, and, and get one in. And then we, you know, we can kind of talk about a good bit of their Uber here on the show. But I asked you, so okay, let's pick one and you picked this one. And I do think it's neat that we're kind of starting at the end of the run versus the beginning, because I'll be honest with you, man. Like I had not thought about the Marx Brothers for years. Really my only frame of reference for Marx Brothers and forgive me for this is in the third season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There's an entire episode about Xander and how like useless he is as a character while he has a little side adventure while everybody else does their thing. And it's called the Zeppo. And it's all in reference to Zeppo Marx and kind of you know, sort of what he was. And what's funny is having now gone and read a good bit about Zeppo, because even watching Buffy all those years, I didn't really read it. I just took it for what it said. It's you read about who Zeppo was like as a performer and also as a person. And I totally get why they kind of laid that on the Xander character. It's really kind of weird and uncanny and Joss Whedney. But uh, that's that was kind of my frame of reference. That and like Bugs Bunny cartoons and You Bet Your Life and stuff like that. And I think just little skits here and there. But I, I had never seen a Marx Brothers movie uh, start to finish. No way. I mean, surely you've heard some of their more famous quips, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. The, all the zingers and stuff like that coming out. Like I'm sitting there watching particularly Groucho do his thing. Uh, on screen when he's the doctor and like he's crossing his legs and walking around backwards and all this kind of stuff. Like I had seen that and I knew that, but I didn't know what it was from or what it was in reference to. And I knew I had never seen this movie, even though I think I've seen the archetype of this movie. Goodness, probably 25 times in my lifetime. Yeah. It's, it's, it's weird how it's, it's weird to me. Their, their whole story is fascinating and it's, and I always feel like uh, Zeppo kind of gets uh, the short shrift because he always got stuck. He's he was the youngest of the four uh, who went into the, the who went into the movies, and he always ended up getting stuck playing the straight man because he yeah. tended to be the Marx Brothers that would fill in f- if one of them was sick. Uh, he would how it would work typically is he would take over Groucho's part. And then Groucho would take over, usually it was Chico, he would take over Chico's part. So during their, like, Broadway days, their theater days, their vaudeville days, he was kind of the utility Marx brother. And uh, I, don't, I feel like he doesn't get any respect because he gets stuck being the straight man. Uh, because he's the most normal looking of them. Uh, this is true. Kind of a sliding <laughs> scale, though, and he's not even in this one. Uh, no, he's brings, not. Yeah. But that brings up a funny story because um, when the Marx Brothers were first going to go to MGM, uh, Irving Thalberg said, well, there's only three of you now. I'm going to pay you less. And Groucho famously said, without Zeppo, we're worth twice as much. <laughs> that's uh, that's hardcore. <laughs> well, I mean, these guys, again, their their influence on comedy and on 
performance and a, and a particular era of performance cannot be denied for sure. But what I'm most interested in is can you watch a movie from 1937 that's definitely built with 1937 sensibilities, top to bottom, in 2020 and still have fun with it? And not overthink it and all of that kind of stuff. And so we'll get into that as we go through this. I do find it neat, though, that we've got sort of this uh, the, the the B players, if you will. Alan Jones, Marino Sullivan, who I knew from Tarzan movies, so I had seen her and stuff. Um, and then Margaret Dumont as kind of their foils. And I, I remember I saw this thing where Groucho Marx late in his life said Margaret Dumont was his favorite straight man because she never laughed at any of his jokes because she simply didn't get them. And I thought that was great. I mean, it was because yeah, apparently they did a lot of work together. And I thought, well, that's, that's pretty good, you know, because uh, with this guy, like I can only imagine what trying to work with that energy would have been like. I, mean, I, I liken it only to like what Sweezy Kurt said it was like to try to act opposite of Jim Carrey and Liar Liar when he's just <laughs> just going over and just losing it. And she's like stop you know <laughs> like she doesn't know what to do and uh i, I don't know I, I i think of that kind of energy when i see grouch to remarks and i see again the people that he influenced steve martin and robin williams and and again jim carrey you know those are three big ones i can think of off the top of my head and just just watching them work would be intimidating on on a set and the fact that his his two brothers are over there just giving it as good as they can get but they're they're such different energies uh, it's uh, it's so neat. It's, it's neat to see, and it'll be neat to kind of talk about as we get into this thing. Yeah, it's Margaret Dumont makes a lot of these jokes work uh, because of her reactions, and she is she is the most important non Marx brother in every Marx Brothers movie. Um, yeah, I think Russell referred to her as the the uh, unofficial like next member of the family. Or something like that. She, I mean, she really just was the next one in line. So, well, I think we delayed it long enough, Ron. I, I ha- can't imagine a lot of our audience may be aware of this movie or have watched it recently or anything like that. So please do give a plot summary for A Day at the Races, if you can. Well, that's good because this, uh, the two MGM movies are the more, more plot heavy of the, of the Marx Brothers flicks. The other ones are the ones that are going to be, we're going to have a really hard time having a plot summary because they're not, it's not exactly that much plot. But in this case, the Standish Sanitarium, owned by the lovely Marino Sullivan playing Judy Standish, has fallen on hard times. Uh, the local banker who owns the nearby racetrack and nightclub is looking to buy the property and turn it into a casino. Judy's faithful employee, Tony Chico Marx, suggests that they ask for some financial help from the wealthy patient and hypochondriac Mrs. Emily Upjohn, the great Margaret Dumont. She keeps getting a clean bill of health from the doctors of the sanitarium, so she threatens to leave and take her money with her to get treatments by her doctor from Florida, Dr. Hugo Z. Hackenbush. And if you can't tell that that's going to be Groucho Marx, you don't know what movies are like. But it turns out Groucho or Hugo isn't actually a real doctor. He is a horse doctor, literally. But Tony hears Mrs. Upjohn praising Hackenbush, and he decides that to the best thing possible to save the sanitarium would be to bring him in and to keep this woman's money coming in. Uh, there's a subplot where uh, Judy is engaged to Gil Stewart. That's the Alan Jones character, who is a singer and performer at Morgan's Nightclub, which allows us to get a couple of really good MGM dance scenes in. He has spent all of his savings, rather than getting married to Maureen O'Sullivan, he spent all of his savings to buy a horse named Hi-Hat. Of course, <laughs> Poor the horse. James, you can't get a break. I mean, one guy's running to the jungle, the next one's blowing it on a horse. <laughs> 
All right, so it turns out this horse is kind of terrible, except for one thing. The horse is deathly afraid of its previous owner, the aforementioned banker, J.D. Morgan. Uh, Douglas Dumbrill, I believe his name is pronounced, but he is a great uh, bellowing bellicose man who agitates the horse every time he talks to the horse, to the, to the point where the horse is freaking out. So, in classic Marx Brothers fashion, hijinks ensue. Hugo's running a scam on the sanitarium. The sanitarium is running a scam on Margaret Dumont. And all the while, everyone's trying to avoid the banker, make some money, and save the sanitarium from the greedy land developers who want to turn it into a casino. Um, that sets up uh, one surprise. Hi-Hat, while not much of a racing horse, is actually a great jumping horse, particularly when motivated by the bellowing voice of Mr. Morgan. So... The goal is to have the Harpo character, Stuffy, ride the horse secretly in the big steeplechase race, win the money, and save the sanitarium. And, of course, chaos ensues. And a big dance number at the end and all kinds of crazy things. It's it's hard to make a plot out of a movie like this. And I, I think it's funny that you say this one's the plot-heavy one. Because one of the little behind-the-scenes things I read was there were, like, lots of cut scenes. So this is a two-hour movie, we should mention, which is a lot in 1937. And But I guess people didn't have anything else to do, so whatever. But it wasn't like they were going to go home and watch Netflix. But uh, anyway, th- this movie's, you know, all over the place. And they cut scenes that they say would have made it make more sense for some of the gags. And that's why it's so like jumpy and you just go from goofy to goofy because in the editing process, they decided they just wanted to keep the energy up and they felt like the exposition scenes slowed it down, you know? And I'm like, I don't know how else you could possibly explain any of this. Cause I think you nailed it with the, the line of, you know, Hackenbush is running a scam on, on <laughs> Mrs. Upjohn. Um, the, the sanitarium is running a scam on her. <laughs> and meanwhile, they're trying to keep the banker and, you know, business partner from running a scam on the sanitarium as well, while the horse is running the scam on everybody. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. that's kind of what's happening. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's like uh, layers upon layers of con artistry. Everybody's scamming somebody for something. <laughs> exactly. And I think the only way to like, really work through it is just talk about our characters and kind of how they all roll. And I want to start with Chico, though, uh, because we, we talk about how, like, Zeppo had to play the straight man and stuff like that. And Chico is a version of the straight man. He is the pure con straight man, you know, where he's always got a scheme going, but he's not really zinging you with one-liners necessarily. He's just trying to, like, get something over on you. Like, probably no better emphasized than when he, he finally gets uh, Dr. Hackenbush at the racetrack and he keeps selling him books out of his ice cream you know, freezer or whatever to explain, you know, some other non you know, sequitur thing to this. And at the end of it, Groucho's walking around with like a dozen books, you know, like glad I brought my legs today, you know, and so like <laughs> and I'm just sitting there watching this. And again, I'm watching this with 2020 vision a little bit and going like all the things that I have seen done like this. And I'm like, I, how many skits on the Carol Burnett show, like Tim Conway's whole career, it's basically being the the uh, you know illegitimate son of the Marx Brothers. That's definitely true. Yeah, and it's easy to watch. Um, it, it's easy to look at this movie and see all the things that it, it's influenced, as we've talked about. But what's funny to me is how well constructed all the jokes are and all the visual gags are. And mm-hmm. that's because 
one of the things Thalberg, Irving Thalberg, the boy genius at MGM who brought the Marx Brothers to the studio, one of the things he told them to do was go to the stage, work these out. So they did this in front of live audiences and they took jokes from this play and that play and this thing they did and that thing they did and combined them into bits for movies. Well, it, it was a genius way to blot it out because, again, you don't have a lot of scenery, but we, we start with Chico immediately trying to get people. You want to go to the sanitarium like they're coming off the bus, you know, <laughs> or whatever to Florida. And I'm like, oh, first off, the sanitarium thing, I had to go like, wait a minute. Is that what we used to call like convalescing homes and, you know, the hospitals and stuff? Like, oh, yeah, that's right. I just think about that because when I, I hear the word sanitarium, dude, I have one frame of reference for that. And it's Smith's Grove in Illinois and it's Michael Myers. So I'm like, wait, I got to like put that over here to the side because that's clearly not what we're talking about anymore. Um, and it's more in like where Doc Holliday ended up at the end of Doom stuff. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm watching this guy and I'm going like, you're actually just trying to get people to go to the hospital? <laughs> I didn't know we did that back in the day. And I realized then I was like, oh, I'm living in a world where insurance dictates most of this. And that's a world where that didn't exist. Yeah, that's uh, this is a world in which you'd go to the sanitarium for a week like a spa. It, it, it wasn't necessarily to treat some sort of violent mental illness or something like in the case of Michael Myers. Michael Myers wasn't going <laughs> right, anywhere yeah. nearly as nice as the sanitarium in, in the day at the races. Yeah, no, Smith Grove did not have these amenities. Uh, they did have doctors about as quacky as Hackenbush, because Loomis was a total quack. Uh, but uh, that's that's a digression that uh, we don't need to go down any further. I did get a kick though out of watching Chico work, uh, because again, I, I you love like he's just the attentive one, you know, because when they're the uh, Miss Up John is trying to run out of the sanitarium, I'm done here. These doctors can do nothing for me. She tells me I'm fine, but I know in my heart I'm going to have a fainting spell. And I mean, I'm watching her and I'm like, oh, so this is what Steven Spielberg decided Mrs. Deagle would grow up to be like if she was evil. So, cause, <laughs> I mean, because that's exactly what this woman is. <laughs> and, and I'm going to be like, yeah, you know, I could totally see that. Spielberg would get off on putting a character like that in his goofy little Grimsland movie. So, yes, that is I saw that immediately. And I'm watching her and I'm just getting a kick out of watching Margaret Dumont. Just, you know, oh, just she's having the vapors and all kinds of stuff. And poor Maureen <laughs> O'Sullivan over there is trying to keep it together you know, and do what she's supposed to do. Meanwhile, she, she Tony hears all this. Oh, the great Dr. Hackenbush in Florida. And he like he, I love how he gets the little bellboys and is like, nope, just come right back inside with me. And he just runs a scam on her right there. Like, oh, it's too bad. You're going to miss Dr. Hackenbush. And then she, she's like, is that the one from Florida? And he's like, well, where in Florida? And she doesn't even know. I'm like, man, it's John Edwards cold reading somebody. <laughs> that's a great that's a great summation, summation of uh, yeah Tony's work. The, the best part to me, though, of all these Marx Brothers movies is that Tony plays the the bumbling foreigner character right down to wearing a pretty stereotypical hat for the 1930s. That would be mm. like an Italian immigrant's hat. But that it's to me and I think to a lot of people, it's pretty clear that Tony's not actually Italian. He's just pretending to be Italian. Yeah, because people. <laughs> Even back then, people would look down on immigrants fresh off the boat and think they could get one over on them. But meanwhile, he's the one getting over on everybody. And they exactly they very rarely address Chico's uh, permanent uh, fake Italian accent in the movies. Uh, but when they do, it, it's it's always really funny. 
see, and all I noticed was that the accent just slipped in and out a bunch and nobody seemed really paying attention to it. And I'm going like, wow, I've seen a lot of performers do that as well. You know, um, most recently I rewatched Varsity Blues. And when you watch Paul Walker try to do Texas and like by the end of the scene, he's just like, no, nah, I'm just going to be fast and furious guy. You know, like he just doesn't, he can't do it. I'm like, oh, that's great. I, I love that. Or, you know, I, I remember seeing once uh, watching uh, uh, Ewan McGregor desperately try to hide his accent and then just giving up, you know, <laughs> in the middle of the movie. Like, oh, no, that's OK. So um, or oh, better yet, Daniel Craig tries to do that in the invasion with Nicole Kidman and totally oh, gives yeah. up halfway through it. And, and that's OK, because he should, because he's awesome in that really bad version of that movie. But, you know, the other <laughs> thing I got off of Chico or the thing that Chico reminded me of, I realized something like the way he looked and sort of his whole bit. I'm like, friggin Dean Martin ripped this off, too. Yeah. When you say, kind of the uh, the delivery, I think. Yeah, it's it's in the the delivery, and it's also the hat and the look and kind of the the shifty eye, and you know he doesn't have the you know standard Dean Martin fake drink or whatever going on, but he's got everything else, and or Dean does does all the other stuff, and I'm like ah that's where that I mean again the influence is obviously there, and so I thought I thought Chico was fun. I mean he he was really neat to see because I mean I think you think of Marx Brothers, not like, Groucho Marx is sort of like the icon, right? Like that's because the the glasses and the mustache and all that. And uh, I, you know, I think I knew the bit about the painted on mustache, but my darling wife did not know that. So <laughs> she walks through the den um, to see this, like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm watching this Marx Brothers movie. We reviewed it. And she was like, hold on, pause it when it gets on that tall guy again. And I pause it. And she's like, is, it, is that is that painted? And I was like, yep, badly, too. So, yeah, it's, and, uh, it's yeah. a smear of grease paint. And even in his later life, when he actually had a mustache, he would still smear the grease paint over his mustache it would, yeah. to make it like a proto Caesar Romero as the Joker. Exactly. Yes. And I, I love, though, that that's just that it and it shifts too. like you can tell like there's times it's like, oh, where's my mustache? And you said to throw it on real quick before the scene because it's it's half as long. It's twice as long. It's big <laughs> and thick. You know, it's just that, that, but that I mean, again, in the 1930s, there was like zero quality control of the movie, because if you want to know who worked in this movie, you'll see all 12 people in the beginning of the, the credits. And that's it. That's everybody that was there. And to watch him work his magic because to me Groucho Marx is the one-liner guy and like mm -hmm. the king of the beginning of the one-liners and just everything that he zings out at people um, and what he says and I don't know his humor is just so spot on and there's so much of it too that having worked at a school for a number of years that had a big veterinarian program like he works in some veterinarian humor that like only those people would get and I'm, I, and I'm trying to think like specific instances, it's just the way he says certain things and does stuff that made me really chuckle because, again, having been around a lot of vet students, it's like, oh, yeah, this guy actually read up on him. It's it's um, slapstick comedy, but it's really smart, too. Like there's there's a level of intellect underneath all of this stuff. I, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that they're all they're they were a very smart family. I mean. Zeppo, when he left the act, became their manager and made more money than any of them because he became an agent. So he left the act and took over as their manager and then became one of the biggest theatrical agents in New York. Chico, as as you see later in the movie, is actually legitimately a really good piano player because he's all he's mostly self-taught, uh, which is why he's got the weird uh, the finger guns thing he does when he's playing the piano. That's yeah. one of his bits. And Harpo was a self-taught harpist. And 
One of the reasons why Chico was is so good at that con man role is because Chico was kind of a con man in real life. Uh, he was a total degenerate gambler. Uh, he was the Marx brother who uh, ran through all of his money <laughs> to the point where they came back out of retirement just to do a couple of movies for him, and then they put him on an allowance. He he's and Chico's the reason why they got uh, one of the reasons why they got the gig at uh, MGM because Chico was uh, apparently a super was super into cards as was uh, the head of the studio at the time Irving Thalberg who got them these role who got them these two movies so he was playing cards with Chico and when they Paramount kicked him out he Chico and him talked over a hand of pinochle or whatever and. And that's how they ended up getting involved with uh, two of their uh, more classic films. So that's this wild art imitating life like that and life imitating art. I can totally see it, that he would be the instigator in a lot of things. And then you bring in Groucho to kind of, I don't know, light everything on fire. <laughs> the, the, the way the way again that like robin williams or jim carrey did you know or something like that right like that's what he does and i i absolutely love this hugo hackenbush character because in one way he knows he's running the scam but on the other hand he also kind of slyly tells everybody all the time like i'm really not a real doctor <laughs> no, he i mean like if they would just listen to him every now and then they would get it but they don't and that's what made it humorous. And then again, he's uh, again, he's zinging those lines in and out. And uh, I, 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 I referenced it earlier, but I love the part where uh, I think Harpo shoots his leg with, I don't know, Demerol or something. Who knows at that point <laughs> yeah. and tranquilizer some kind of, and the leg goes dead. And so he crosses it over the other one and then proceeds to just walk around the room. And I'm like, <laughs> like, th- how do you figure out, you know how to do that? And, Again, I'm like that got worked out 20 years ago in a in a bit, you know, to make 10 cents or something. And now they're just working it back into the movie. And I think that's one thing to note here is, like you said, the director told him, "Go figure out what you want to do, and then we'll we'll do it in the movie. Just figure out how to do it on the set of where the screen will be." And you can tell these guys just kind of went with the greatest hits of what worked. And sometimes that can be bad, and sometimes it can really work. And in this case, it's it's three who are definitely have a rhythm with each other. And I guess that brings us to Harpo, who, man, I'm going to be honest with you, for me, absolutely steals this movie and doesn't say a damn word the whole time. And that's probably the most awesome thing about him. Well, that's Harpo's whole bit. Harpo was a big part of every movie playing the the silent clown character. Especially in their earlier movies, Harpo is basically pure anarchy to even more of an extent than the rest of them are. Uh, yeah, Harpo is is probably one of the great silent clowns, and also, strangely enough, one of the great harp players uh, of history as well. And again, like Chico on the piano, Harpo was self taught, and he played with the harp strings so loose that if he had tuned them like a normal harp would be tuned, the way he played them, he would just snap the strings. <laughs> See, that sounds like the way Johnny Resnick from the Goo Goo Dolls writes songs. 
he just started turning the turning the tuning keys and like that works. And then, you know, gold <laughs> records spun out of that guy. And for years I was like, that's bullshit. Until I saw him live a few times. And I'm like, nope, <laughs> this is the kind of guy who would just go like, don't, 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 don't. Yep, that'll work. And just, I mean, just play stuff and it works. And I, I find that hilarious. And I, how they get to Harpo playing the harp in this is amazing, by the way. He destroys the piano to pull the piano out of itself and it's a harp, you know, which is a, just a great gag, right? And then he's playing it and I, there's nothing Rachel noticed. She's like, isn't he holding that the wrong way? I said, yeah, I think that's part of the bit. And I looked it up and found out, nope, that's just how he taught himself how to play. So he didn't even play it the right way to begin with. Yeah, he, he I don't know how you self-teach yourself to play the harp. <laughs> he figured, he figured yeah. out a way. That's not one of those things I feel like you could just pick up, you know, nowadays. But I, I don't know. People did, I guess. You know, you go back and read the Old Testament. There's all kinds of harp players, and I, I can't imagine a harp academy in ancient Israel or anything. So, you know, well, you learn how to do it, I guess, as, you, as you're going along. But no, I, I love everything about Stuffy though, because there's so much about him that's not explained. Like he's always fervent up balloons. Which at first I was like, is that gum? I was like, nope, that's an actual balloon. So he's like a living clown, but like a clown doll, you know? <laughs> and I can I can only think in my head, I'm like, this is also something else Spielberg ripped off when he had that evil clown in, in Poltergeist. It's like if Stuffy came to life and started choking a kid with, you know, a huge overbite. And I mean, that's what he does <laughs> the whole time. And he's playing his little magical flute and he's doing his whole Pied Piper routine. And I don't know. I just I love the energy of him because he's kind of little and he's just sort of goofy and he's almost like a little leprechaun running around on the screen. And it, it gave the movie so much life every time he would get involved in something, whether he was getting kicked by a horse or falling off of a you know bed or whatever. It was very, um, dare I say, like Three Stooges ish, you know, but with one of the Stooges never talked. Yeah, that's definitely a great uh, a great vibe for him. Because you've got Groucho doing the verbal comedy, and you've got Harpo doing all the physical comedy, because he was younger um, than than the other two. And he does some—he's got some great bits in this movie, and this isn't even one of his better his better uh, showpieces, his better showcases. But he's so consistently good, and his—it's his facial expressions. It's like. You can see how Harpo became, uh, I don't know, Mr. Bean. Yes, yes, exactly. And the fact that he absolutely does not talk and he's trying to tell Tony like Hackenbush is in trouble and he does like this weird charades, you know, while he's whistling the whole time and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, and like you get the sense that like these, that's how those two characters have communicated for years, Tony and Stuffy. You know, that they just know how to how to make it work. And I love his, his intro is when he you know, gets fired because he scares the horse or whatever. And Tony's like, what happens? And he lights a match and, you know, flicks it out. He's like, oh, you got fired. And I was like, well, I, I guess that's how we communicate in this world. OK, so, but it was, you know, two honks for a you know yes or something. I don't know. I, I thought it was it was good. Again, the, the Marx Brothers are this movie. All right. And, and they make all of it. But I dare say. It's the other three or four or five people they have to play against. Like the job that Maureen O'Sullivan and we've already talked about Margaret Dumont and even Alan Jones, the lifting they have to do to just try to kind of keep it together and be the quote normal people in the movie is amazing to me because poor Maureen O'Sullivan has inherited this sanitarium 
which in 1937, that's a pretty good gig. You know, good, good for you, you know, mm-hmm. and, but, but it's in terrible financial shape, mostly because your business manager is running this scam with the banker. Uh, J.D. Morgan, by the way, what real, real slight, uh, you know, hiding of what we're talking about there, uh, <laughs> guys. But I love how Alan Jones, the lounge singer, who she has sunk all her hopes and dreams into, decides, I'm going to go $1,500 on a horse and win a race and it'll save the sanitarium. Now, Jay, knowing that the banker's name is J.D. Morgan, would it surprise you to know that Groucho held a grudge against bankers after he lost all his money in the Great Depression? I, I can imagine that. <laughs> that came from a very yeah. personal place for these guys. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> they have to do such a, a hard job. And and Alan Jones, he was replacing a Marx brother in this role because this would usually be the Zeppo role. Because Je- right. Zeppo was kind of the young, uh, was the young kind of good looking one. Um, and he was the one who did uh, the non-comedy singing. And he would typically have this the, the love interest portion of the previous movies and he's got to stand up to these other three guys who are just running rampant all over the film well not only that he's got to deliver some straight crooner in this movie on a couple of different occasions like when it breaks down and we start singing i'm like oh man i forgot there's an era of hollywood that is now only like trading in on for nostalgia like la la land and stuff like that where Actors could that could sing that got showcased in movies in such a way. I mean, I think about like Judy Garland and The Wizard of Oz and you know, so many other roles, right? But th- when he breaks down in the lounge and he's singing, two things: one, beautiful tenor voice, and he's tomorrow's you know, the the is the next day. It's all about hope and all this kind of stuff. It's real Scarlett O'Hara kind of, but it's also something that I saw ripped off in Top Secret with Val Kilmer many decades later. It's the same thing. Go watch that movie and you're like, Nick Rivers is ripping off that scene from Day at the Races. Uh, And I wouldn't doubt that the uh, Zucker and Abrams, that that was what they were into. Uh, Because they're they're the next generation of this kind of stuff. But I I love this guy. I mean, I I don't know him from anything, right? Never seen him before, but I'm listening to this voice and I'm like, what a just a beautiful pure voice and i'm sitting there going like 1937 this guy probably smoked like 25,000 lucky strikes a day you know <laughs> drink, drink whiskey by the gallon and still can sing like that and i don't know if any of that's true and if i've just besmirched him this podcast is for entertainment purposes only but i mean really like i i'm i'm just watching this guy and i'm in total awe of how he just captivates the screen and i really got the chemistry between him and judy or uh, uh, Gil and Judy here. Uh, I thought he and Maureen O'Sullivan really played well off of one another. Yeah, they they worked really well. They worked better than a, a lot of the straight romantic uh, pairings do in the Marx Brothers movies. And the addition of the the big song and dance numbers. Uh, well, Alan Jones was a, a musical actor anyway, um, but the addition of the the big song and dance numbers was an MGM thing because Irving Thalberg was big on the let's give everybody something. So that's why you got the big number at the club with the uh, the chorus and the ballet dancer, and why you got the weirdly enough Oscar nominated uh, performance later on in the movie of All God's Chillin' Got Rhythm. Wow. <laughs> yes. We'll get to that scene in a little bit for sure because we'll have to talk about it. But the big club scene here again, and it breaks down with of course Chico doing a piano routine, Harpo doing the harp. 
And it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's all played again for big laughs because the whole point is, is we're trying to string miss up John along long enough that all the people trying to discredit Hackenbush can't ever get him to sit down long enough for them to actually do it. But what happens is they finally say, okay, you got to give her a proper medical exam. And I'm sitting there going like, <laughs> how on earth is this guy? There's no way this is going to be pulled off right. And from the minute Groucho starts like washing his forearms for the fourth time and all <laughs> the goofy stuff that they go through to like not be the doctor. I, I, and, and to get everybody out of the room up to the, you know, dropping the water out of on everybody on the entire set. I'm watching this and I'm going, man, again, where have I seen all this? And I, I, I keep making these forward references because I think it's just my point of view, but I'm watching Chevy Chase and Fletch be the fake doctor trying to find out, you know, why Alan Stanwyck has bone cancer or what the hell. I mean, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's definitely, um, she'll <laughs> see. I'm sorry. I'm laughing thinking about, how many times they just keep going back to washing their hands. Now it's always the other doctor, Dr. Steinberg. Yeah. <laughs> How it's his fault for, for causing them to, to need to re-sanitize their hands. And then the, the, the Groucho thing where he takes his watch off and he's going to give it to Steinberg, but he says, no, I, I want to make sure I get it back later. As if this doctor is going to steal <laughs> his watch. Yeah. I know you're right. He's the whole, Oh, well, I think we need to start with washing our hands again. And it just keeps going back. And I, I expected the three of them to get in like, you know, on top of each other with a big trench coat by the end of it and just be like a, you know, a morph doctor. I mean, there's that kind of goofiness that was going on, uh, but it was still funny. And I found myself so laughing at it. And at some point I realized I'm like, I'm laughing at a movie that is, you know, what? 90 year, almost 90 years old at this point. How am I laughing at something that again, I've seen a million times since and it's all in the execution and it's two sides of the execution. You got to have the goofy thing, but you've also got to have the people that are unawares in the room that are playing it straight and how these people kept it together. I can only uh, imagine the number of takes that like got ruined because somebody lost it. Yeah, the uh, the doctor, the doctor Steinberg, the actor uh, Sig Ru- Sig Ruman, often played the stuffy German doctor for obvious reasons, and he looks like if you think of a stuffy German doctor in your head, that's this is what this guy looks like, and he is such a great straight man against the Marx Brothers. Yeah, it is. He and Margaret Dumont keep this scene alive because at some point, the thing about slapstick comedies, and this is often my complaint about them. Uh, is that the gag goes on too long and then it becomes boring. Um, I'll give you a good example. There's a ton of these like SNL skits from the nineties that then became like a movie. Right. And some of them work like Wayne's world more or less works, you know, uh, is a, is a pretty fun gag. Uh, the love guru, not so much. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And why? Because once the gag goes on for a little too long, like you can tell, like it's run out of steam. And it usually goes on too long when there's nobody to keep resetting the action and, and make it fun again. And I never got bored with as, as much as this went on and on and just became like a tornado of chaos. I never got bored with any of it. And that's a testament to how well this holds up. Yeah. And it's a testament to how hard MGM worked to get the movie right too, I think, and how hard the Marx brothers worked to get all the bits right. Cause this movie had like 18 different scripts. Like 
it was written and rewritten and this guy came in to work on it and that guy came in to work on it. And then the, this writer had a violent disagreement with the studio and got fired. And then the Marx Brothers took it out and did a tour off of the material. And yet somehow this tour that they did, they go take it to the movies and it still becomes like a huge hit. And I think a lot of that, a lot of the, of what makes this movie work, at least to me, is that they all, everybody involved in this worked incredibly hard to pull this off. And I, you can't tell by watching the hand washing scene, for example, or the whole thing in the surgery room, who knows how many takes they had to go wash their hands Considering that they washed their hands like five or six times in the actual cut of the movie, there's no telling how many hundreds of times they splashed themselves and all over the studio with water before they had to reset. And that is just an amazing level of of dedication, I I think. And one of the reasons why uh, this flick and why the Marx Brothers themselves are worthy of being, you know, watched and discovered almost a hundred years after the fact. No, totally. I, I completely agree. And it, it makes it so much fun. we got to talk about the big number with the, I don't know what you call them, the servants, the African-Americans in the movie, whatever, where we get the big minstrel singing scene, which is, was a big part of vaudeville and, and all that kind of stuff. Work me into this because again, modern sensibility would be like, Big red X on this movie for doing something like this and for the way it goes. But I got to be honest with you. And again, I say this as a as a, just a white guy here. I'm watching this and I'm going like this is it's all played for laughs. It's fun. It's actually a good gag on how these guys decide they're going to get away from the sheriff and these evil bankers that are trying to expose Hackenbush. Because after this, that they realize he's totally you know, frauding them. And the, the March Brothers are all hiding out in the stables. Well, um. I live in a city that's built around basically a racetrack. And I can tell you that the backside of the track has, is always and has always been the part that nobody really pays attention to. I mean, the backside of Churchill Downs, because I live in Louisville, is essentially you have to look to find someone who speaks English. Because it is, in this case, nowadays, it's mostly people from Mexico and and Central and South America who do all of the hard, unpleasant things like mucking out stalls and and taking care of these, you know, 2,000-pound horses. And in, you know, 1930s California, who's going to be working on the backside of the track? It's probably not going to be white people. And I, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I would necessarily call this a minstrel number because at no point, well, okay. At one point the Marx brothers smear mud on their faces to try to sneak out, but they do such a poor job of it that I don't even know if you can call it like minstrel show paint because Harpo literally just smears one hand of mud down one side of his face and leaves the other half of his face white. And they all look like white people just covered in mud which is what they are. Well, that's the whole impetus of the song. Who that man? Like, who is that trying to hide out with us? Right? Like that's the whole point of that song. Mm -hmm. The black woman who comes in and sings, uh, Ivy Anderson, she was from the Duke Ellington orchestra. So that's why she comes in and absolutely kills this song. Oh yeah. She's awesome. Yeah. 
and it was a chance for MGM to get actual black people on a on a screen shown in a relatively respectful manner because I mean there's no they don't seem to be you know criminals or thugs are dangerous they don't seem to be particularly put out by the white people hiding in their midst they seem to be you know relatively happy with their lot in life they're having a pretty great looking party i gotta say look they're the part of the community that seems to be happy everybody else in this movie is miserable on one level or another even the goofy marx brothers in each of their little roles they're all trying to accomplish something. So this constant weight of either keeping up the scam or trying to run the scam or play the heart backwards or whatever you're trying to do. And you're trying to keep the sanitarium alive. I'm trying to do my lounge singer act and bet on a horse. And I'm also trying to convince everybody that I'm sick, but I'm really not. All these people, you know, are doing this. I'm trying to build a casino. You know, I've got all this stress. And then you got the people that actually do all the work that are like, yeah. hey, whatever. It's a good day. By the way, who are you? Yeah, and and they they call out the infiltration. I think it's the best number in the movie. And I look that makes people uncomfortable. I'm sorry, but you got to look at this. And I think you've nailed it. MGM decided we're going to put really talented people on the screen that don't look like what most people used are used to seeing on the screen and show you what they can do. And I thought it was fantastic. I think it looks amazing. And that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty uh, popular jazz number, or was back in the day anyway. And it's but funny. again, the 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 way it's played off again is so goofy. They don't even get the face right, like the guys don't. They don't get the accent grease enough on them, so it doesn't even really work. And all of it goes to hell when the horse finally loses its mind because it's hearing the old owner talk again. And I look, I don't know how you got this horse to like kick and beat the crap out of the set, but then, like you see the thing falling apart in front of it as the horse kicks it. And at one point, I saw one of the actors narrowly dodge a kick and i'm like that that didn't look staged that looked like oh i just got out of the way yeah that's that's definitely legit that's that was definitely a guy who almost got kicked <laughs> but yeah it's a it's a pretty great number and it ends in a in a very funny to me bit of physical comedy and i who knows how many horses died <laughs> trying to do that. I, I think I, I texted you like how many of these made the glue factory when it was over with <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure i'm sure hi-hat lived uh, somehow <laughs> whichever one he was at that point because that's the other gag here too and they don't really admit to it it's clearly a different horse in almost every scene it's a different horse every time <laughs> yeah and part of that is it's the time. And, and again, they getting the horses to be able to act and do stuff. I and mean, we're decades from Mr. Ed and things like that at this point. But animal wranglers like at, in the 1930s it would have been just like, you want an animal? Here it is. And they threw on the set. You know, they didn't know what to do with it. Mean, they figured out how to try these things for camera work. So it's a different horse every time. And I think that's like a good underlying sort of funny gag to note. And here in 2020 to know that every time I see this horse, it's basically a different horse, you know, even in the race scenes, which look so different than the rest of the movie. You can tell like sets. And then we went to an actual racetrack with real jockeys and yeah, shot them with high uh, speed cameras. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, Santa Anita racetrack. It's still there. Um, and they're beautiful shots, too, by the way, like capturing horse racing has never been an easy thing. 
um, to do and make it look good like it really does. I mean, you, I know you live in Louisville. I've been to Kentucky and seen like actual horror creations. The pageantry of the thing is is unmistakable. But what you never see really captured is, except in something like Secretary, where they actually spend a lot of money making it look good, you know, and again, a lot of that was CGI as it was. You, you just don't see good horse race scenes. I thought the horse racing looked great. Like all the close-ups and stuff. I mean, obviously it's not Harpo, but it might as well have been. Well, I mean, the best part about Harpo is you stick a curly wig on somebody and they and they can pass for Harpo. Yeah, it's <laughs> and, a fright wig. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the funny thing about uh, Harpo is they don't they never mentioned, but that rig is that wig isn't blonde; it's red. Oh wow, that is wild. I guess yeah. I guess in black and white though, that's how it would show up better. So. Yeah, and because yeah. in other movies he's got names like Red and Pinky, but it's the same wig every time, and it's the same <laughs> red wig. What a girl! What a great gag! But I love how they finally figure out that hey, this horse is a jumper when it clears the little stable fence. So they enter it in the steeplechase, which again, I have worked at a at a horse school among other things. I, we had a big equestrian team too, so I got to see some of that, which is cool. I mean, steeplechase is really majestic and kind of fun and stuff. It's not nearly as violent as this movie makes it out to be. This is like a claw, like Ben Hur as a, a, a stable chase race, but okay, I'll go with it. I mean, it's, it's funny because they finally figure out that, ah, oh, we just got to get that loud Morgan on the loudspeaker. So leave it to Groucho to figure out a way to make that happen. Yeah. And that also, that also sets up that whole thing where they, they they keep trying to sneak cameras into Morgan's box is a is a really funny bit, especially when they just throw the dog in there. Yeah, <laughs> I need you to explain to me what happens at the end of this with like the switch room with the horses because I got a little lost. Well, it's it's uh, after both the horses wipe out and they both uh, jockey scramble to get back on the horses. Um, in the end, it looks as though because both horses are absolutely covered in mud that Morgan's horse wins. Because Stuffy gets back on a horse and Morgan's jockey gets back on a horse and um, they finish with Morgan's jockey winning. But as it turns out, Morgan's jockey and Stuffy switched horses. So Morgan's jockey won, rode high hat to victory and Stuffy rode the other horse to second place. So this would be like if there was a crash at Talladega and Dale Earnhardt and Richard Petty switched cars. All of a sudden, and the Basically. Richard Petty car won, but it's because Dale's behind the wheel. Yeah, that's basically <laughs> it. Yeah. Now, okay, now I understand it. So, um, I mean, you live in Kentucky and horses. I'm from Alabama, NASCAR. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, the whole point is though that they all think, oh shoot, we've lost, we've lost everything, and actually, no, we won through the most screwed up way possible, and now we have like this big grease, we go together, dance off at the end, I guess, <laughs> where we're in the money, and I, I think, I think um, Dr. Hackenbush proposes to Mrs. Upjohn in like the funniest way, it's like, if you marry me, I'll never look at another horse again, or something <laughs> like that. And I'm like, well, that that's a great way to tell her that. And I don't know, and all this, uh, you know, you got Gil singing everybody out, and the sanitarium saved, and like the angry bankers over to the side, you know, like I, it would have worked if it wasn't for you, Midland March Brothers. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great summation of everything. Yeah. So uh, as it turns out, Doctor Hackenbush wins out on the ultimate scam, which is marrying the rich uh, widow Upjohn. <laughs> And yeah, the sanitarium right? still gets saved, yeah. 
Well, and the whole bit, though, is at the beginning of the whole thing, she says, if you can keep me happy here in the sanitarium, I'd be willing to you know, make it worth your while. So not only like continue to be a patient, but she would basically say, like, I'll keep it running because she's got the dough to be able to do it. Well, now they got the horse money and her money. And so everybody I mean, it is trading places. You know, it's like we, yeah, we got rich is. and made y'all poor at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, it is a funny way to end this whole thing. And, you know, we've laughed through three fourths of this podcast. So I don't think it'll be too obvious how we rate these. But for, you know, tradition's sake, Rod, that's time to get final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for a day at the races? It's the beginning of the end of the glory period of the Marx Brothers. Even a good Marx Brothers movie is better than a lot of comedy that's being made then now or in the future. And of the, of the, the four we're going to talk about, this is probably my least favorite of the four, but it's still definitely a large popcorn. Cause there, cause there's a lot of stuff in this movie that is extremely funny. And oh. that is ultimately the judge of any comedy. And if, for example, you're turned off by Alan Jones's singing, or you don't like the big MGM dance routine, well, wait a few minutes, because then you're going to get somebody Pratt falling off of a horse, or you're you're going to get some great physical comedy, or you're going to get some incredible one-liners from Groucho. So, large popcorn for sure. I'm going to give this a large popcorn as well, and again, being totally new to all of this, I found it extremely hilarious how much I could latch onto as a part of this movie. I mean, there's so much of this that still works even to this day. And if you're like me, you can go in and watch it and realize you're going to see so much of what you absolutely love in future comedies. The grandfather of it is right here in front of you. So it is totally worth your time to watch it. If you like comedies, and I would say if you really like comedies up through the 90s, modern comedies is different. It's sort of based on a different thing uh, in a lot of ways. But if you like comedies that, that ran, particularly when, when I was growing up through the late 70s, the 80s, the 90s, I mean, goodness gracious, I don't think there would be a movie like Ghostbusters if you didn't have the Marx Brothers. That's a Marx Brothers movie. It was just made 50 years too late. You know, things like the Blues Brothers, all those kind of movies. If you like that stuff. This definitely needs to be in your wheelhouse, and it's going to be a lot of fun talking about them throughout March uh, with you. So, Rod, tell people the other three March Brothers movies we're going to talk about this month. See, we are doing, in addition to A Day at the Races, we're doing the other Queen album, A Night at the Opera. And we are doing <laughs> – yeah, sorry. Yeah, we're doing uh, A Night at the Opera. We're doing uh, Duck Soup, which is – one of my favorite movies of all time. And I believe we're doing horse feathers. Do that is that correct. correct. Horse feathers. All right. You have that right. It's going to be a fun ride all the way along for sure. And we're glad you're here to join us. So before we wrap it up here, Ron, tell people how they can follow you on the socials, how they can follow your writing. And Hey, if you've got a podcast you're really into right now, you want to throw a recommend that to throw that in there as well. You can find me as always at denofgeek.com and denofgeek.us. I'm reviewing the I, uh, by the time this airs, I will be back reviewing The Walking Dead, and I will have reviewed the great HBO show The Outsider, based off of the Stephen King book of the same name. It is absolutely brilliant. It is uh, it is some of the best performances you'll see on TV this year. The one of the lead actresses, this lady named Cynthia Erivo, is 
actually nominated for uh, was nominated for an Oscar this year, and she may have won the EGOT by the time this comes out because she'd already won the other three for the Broadway revival of Raisin in the Sun. She's absolutely brilliant. She's amazing. Ben Mendelsohn is absolutely great. Uh, I'm super keen on the show, and I recommend everybody watch it if you haven't. And by the time this is released, it should be out there for uh, the world to view. And you can follow me on Twitter at Hollywood Ron. And as always, I recommend everyone go listen to Film Stories with Simon Brew. Uh, he's a uh, he's he's a brilliant, wonderful man, and he's actually going to be running some of my writing as soon as I get it done. So. That'll be fun, too. Uh, for me, I'm going to recommend a podcast that's a little bit more on the serious side, but I do think it is worth your time. It's called No Need to Argue, and it's hosted by Ashley and Tom Schlafly. You may know Ashley if you listen to any of the Dana Buckler show. She makes routine appearances on there. I think most recently she's been kind of doing vampire movies and stuff with Dana. Uh, but they detail the ups and downs and rebounds of their relationship through addiction, rehab, recovery, relapse in a completely open and honest way that is – eye-opening and touching and I just really doesn't play on the sentimentality. It really works through the facts of like, this is what this is like to live with. And uh, they're both really burying their soul out there. It's a tough subject matter for sure, but worth checking out if you're so inclined. So you can follow them on uh, Twitter at no need to argue and then look for the podcast as well. Uh, they've got a few episodes out now and uh, they're going to do different topics each season. They say this one's about addiction and then they're going to take other things that are tough for people to talk about, but that they sort of deal with and have talked about. And anyway, it's, it's definitely worth your time. If you haven't checked that one out, I, I do recommend uh, Ashley and Tom's work over it. No need to argue. Of and course. She's also, folks, she's also a great Twitter follow, by the way. You can find more episodes, folks, of Filmstrip, though, at our website, filmstrippodcast.com, as well as the feeds to everywhere you can subscribe to and download the show. Google, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, you name it, we're out there. You can follow the show's social media as well, at FilmstripPod on Twitter and Instagram now. Brian's really, uh, Brian and Irene are really pushing the Instagram. We throw out stuff from like previous retrospectives or previous shows as well as current shows, so follow us there. Follow us on Facebook at Filmstrip Podcast as well for show updates and chance to interact with the other hosts. We appreciate your support. So until next time, for Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.